Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, chances are, if you've turned on the news uh, recently, you've seen extensive coverage or heard about extensive uh, talk around the Zika virus. While this latest outbreak of infectious disease has many worried and scrambling to uh, to understand all of the potential dangers, the virus is not new to the scientific world. In fact, the Zika virus was first discovered in the 1940s. For years, Zika outbreaks were and appeared to do little harm. However, within the last year, that has all changed, first with a massive outbreak in Brazil, affecting more than a million people. And now with its continued growth, the whole world is searching for answers about the threat. Uh, Joining us today is Dr. Chantelle Sloan, a professor of health science here at Brigham Young University. She's joining us uh, in studio to help us understand what we need to worry about, how the virus, the Zika virus spreads, and the dangers it can bring. Dr. Sloan, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great to have you. This is, I mean, Zika, it's been around since 1940, the Zika virus. Is it the same virus, or I guess does it keep mutating? What's going on? Well, most viruses keep changing over time, and there might be multiple strains. But um, this is essentially the same virus that emerged in the 40s and 50s. It just, in the last few years, has spread more widely around the world, primarily in the tropics. I mean, now there's not, I guess there's nine known cases of pregnant women with the Zika virus in the United States. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about why a pregnant woman is um, is so at risk. So a lot uh, – we still need a lot more information around this actually. Um, there have been a lot of reported cases of birth defects, primarily microcephaly, in pregnant women in Brazil and French Polynesia primarily um, – So we do have some connection we know to these birth defects, but there's actually some new reports just out in the last couple of days that a lot of those initial reported cases of birth defects might actually be due to other viruses. Oh, boy. And so we don't have a good sense of the numbers, but we do know there are some Zika, uh, at least associated cases, where there's a pretty tight correlation to being infected. But those numbers which were being reported between 10 and 15 percent, um, might actually be a bit lower, which is good news. Goodness. But we still need a lot more information. And there are huge teams now down in Brazil, Polynesia, Asia, trying to figure out what those numbers actually are. I guess that's the key, right? I mean, mm-hmm. now that we, it's getting the attention, we study it more. But there is no known um, – there's no cure Correct. for the virus, right? There's no mm-hmm. way to stop it. And it's not – I guess it, there's benefits because it's not being spread uh, through air, right? So it's just through mosquito mm-hmm. bites. Yeah, and there are a couple cases now of spread through sexual activity. That's right. Um, still very rare, but that's actually really quite new to the infectious disease world that a mosquito-borne virus uh, could be spread through sexual activity, um, but that it's in very rare cases. So and talk to us about this because this is – I mean, I don't sense, I don't get a lot of mosquito bites in the United States, but now that there are cases here, does that mean that the cases are just coming from people that were in other countries? It's not necessarily that the mosquitoes are carrying it here. Yeah, so we have about 150 confirmed cases last I saw in the U.S., and I believe pretty much everyone has been travel-associated. People Mm -hmm. have recently been to uh, parts of South America 
and picked it up there. Um, the concern is that we could have some cases, especially in the south- southeastern U.S. Um, we know there are a lot of cases in Puerto Rico, for example, mm-hmm. the Caribbean. And so with similar diseases like dengue virus or chikungunya virus that have followed similar patterns of spread around the tropics, we do see those occasional cases in the southeast. But thankfully, so far, that hasn't been the case. And if you're infected, how would you know? Um, actually, most people won't ever know. About 80% of the cases won't go reported. Um, you have basically mild flu-like symptoms. And so most people with those kind of symptoms will not ever visit a clinician or be tested for Zika. Um, but if you do have those flu-like symptoms and you've recently traveled to that part of the world, it uh, might be a good idea to get a checkup. But yeah. most people won't ever know, actually. It you won't just, affect them. And, and I guess if you're a male or a female... Um, it's it's basically a flu. That's basically what it feels like. But if you're a pregnant female, then that virus could also then impact your, your baby. Yes, that's where the major concern is. So, I mean, you have the Olympics down in Brazil coming up. Mm-hmm. This is, I mean, even to the point that maybe athletes won't go down to participate in the Olympics. There's been a lot of concern around that. I don't, don't particularly know any reports of people saying, you know, that they should yeah. boycott the Olympics right. or anything like that. Um, but there is concern that what will happen when you have uh, that many people from around the world traveling to one area is that they will then bring it mm-hmm. back to their home countries. Um, around the tropics, the spread has been so rapid, though, that I don't know how big of a difference the Olympics will end up specifically making. Right. But, of course, it's it's a concern. And then do you – so we have 150 known cases in the United States, let's say. But then – so if a mosquito bites somebody that has one, has the, the virus, then, then it could spread the virus. Yes, then it could spread. Other the than mosquitoes, is there any other way – and se- I guess we have some examples of set being tra- uh, transmitted through sexual activity. Any other way that it spreads? Not that we're aware of. I mean I guess if there was – uh, it's spreading through sexual activity, through um, blood exchange, mm-hmm. essentially. Right. So maybe IV needles so or what, if, like other methods of. It would have to be a lot of blood. Um, it's that's not something we're we're really seeing on our radar yeah. right now. It's really just the mosquito-borne um, transmission that's the major concern. And then, do you? I guess cause, I mean, this is what I, is so strange. It's a virus we haven't heard anything about for, for we've known about it for forty years. What in the end would you say is causing the the outbreak? So it's a little hard to say. Um, This happens sometimes with these viruses. For instance, chikungunya is a virus that's spread around the tropics um, and actually has uh, some more severe initial symptoms with arthritis and pain in the joints. And um, it was around in the 60s, went away, and then came back and just spread around the world in the matter of a few years. And it's just the right conditions, the right people end up being connected. It you know, emerges mm. in, say, a place where there's a lot of transportation. And these things can just spread very quickly if conditions happen to yeah. be right. But we don't know <laughs> exactly and a what big, that means. And a big mosquito season with uh-huh. a bunch of mosquitoes. Um, a lot of rain. A lot of rain. I guess that's part of it is – this this is getting just a lot of attention, a lot of press. It seems like to me there's probably other viruses, other infections that we that are probably more we're more likely to catch than the Zika virus in the United States. Except this is the one getting all of the attention. True, there are a lot more infectious diseases that are spreading through the U.S. or through the Americas that um, cause a lot more symptoms. But because Zika just 
uh, came out so quickly. And, mm-hmm. of course, there's this strong concern for pregnant women. I think that's why we're seeing so much of it in the press. But for most people in the United States, if you're not traveling to Central South America, it's not really yeah. an area of concern for If you're us. doing a cruise in in the in the Caribbean, you probably ought to pay attention. Yeah, which which is true for dengue and again chicken right. and these other viruses as well. It's the same kind of prevention: long sleeves, mosquito repellent, avoiding areas with lots of standing water. You know, we just do our best to prevent getting bitten. Yeah. Does what are some of the viruses that we ought to be paying more attention to just day to day? Well, I mean, seasonal influenza kills twenty three thousand people in the U.S. every year. Um, primarily people over the age of 65. Um, and so, of course, just uh, getting your vaccines, eating healthy, trying to stay home if you've got symptoms to not spread things. I mean, that's what we're concerned that's with all the time. We're at peak flu season right now, just these last couple of weeks. So, Oh, is that right? Mm-hmm. Right now, of yeah, all things. At, yeah, we're right at peak. Good. <laughs> ben, are you listening? So. Ben, yeah, he always likes to bring a virus in. <laughs> cough it around. Um, we like to bring Ben in every once in a while. Um, let's do this. Let's take a break and come back, continue our discussion with Dr. Chantel Sloan about the Zika virus, uh, what you need to worry about, really. Also, we'll come back and talk about um, prevention. And I mean, really, um, if you're, the, I guess part of the rule, we'll get into it, is sexually active female that could potentially get pregnant. You got to pay attention. This mm-hmm. can impact your baby. And... Um, It's a big deal. Uh, A lot of children suffering right now in Central and South America because of it. Uh, We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Helping you live longer, folks. We'll be right back. Friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, in the news, you hear it all the time, all the talk about the Zika virus uh, down in Central and South America, now up here in the United States, nine, I guess, known cases of of pregnant women um, carrying the virus, plus 150 or so other confirmed um, infections in the United States. Joining us is Dr. Chantel Sloan. She is a professor of health science uh, here at Brigham Young University and teaches a class. Listen to the title of this class. It's a... it's it's what what's it called again, Chantel? Infectious disease, infectious disease prevention and control. Ew, infectious <laughs> disease prevention and control. So you put a bunch of students in a class and you teach them about infectious diseases, mm-hmm. prevention of the disease, control of the disease, and one of them now I'm sure is the Zika virus. Yes, we're talking about it quite a bit. Do, does it? What are the? I mean, compared to all the other diseases, again, this is one that we're fairly. It's it's we're fairly safe right now, right? If I mean, you're in the northern U.S., yeah. If you're in the northern U.S. Mm-hmm. and um, if you stay inside, wear long sleeves, bug repellent, and never leave the house, <laughs> you're probably never going to get it. Yeah, you're probably never going to get it because it's it's uh, mosquito born. You're infected by mosquito. We know of maybe sexually sexual activity mm-hmm. in rare cases. In rare cases. Um. But in the end, too, I guess this is this is really traumatic because it, it it does affect it can affect male and female. But a pregnant female, it it can seriously injure a child and the baby. 
Mm-hmm. What do we see happening? So microcephaly means smaller heads. These babies are born with smaller heads. Mm-hmm. What does what's the long term impact? What's what is their life like? Um, severely impaired um, mental retardation. Other babies often pass away um, mm. in the first few years of life. Um, but if they live longer, then there's there's severe kind of mental and physical and plus increased likelihood of miscarriages. Um, and it's. It's just traumatic. I mean, this is this is probably one reason it's getting so much attention because, like you're saying, there's other viruses, mm-hmm. the de- dengue virus. Mm-hmm. There's other virus. And what was the chicken one? Uh, chikungunya. Oh, it. See, so it's the most thought, fun disease to say. Yeah, I thought that was a I thought that was a chicken dish, <laughs> but apparently it's a, it's, a, it's not. It's a gunya. Yeah. Um, talk to us about uh, again the. This isn't probably going to turn into a massive epidemic that's going to then take away generations of children in northern America. Uh, not here. No, probably not. But it is uh, – it could well affect um, many, many children in the tropics. Again, we're trying to get a good handle on what those numbers actually are are likely to be. Um, but it could impact as many as you know 4 million people mm. in those areas, um, whether they're just initially sickened or – um, and then, of course, a much smaller percentage that could end up with some of these birth defects in children. And talk about – because these viruses can change. They can mutate, I guess. They can constantly be evolving. Does, is that what's added the complexity to this for a disease that's been around for since 1940? Is, is, is that just making it more complex? And why don't we have, why don't we have some method of controlling it? So what we would hope to be able to develop is a vaccine, and I know there are a lot of people working on that vaccine right now. Of course, we're also working on vaccines for these other uh, tropical mosquito-borne diseases, but it's a little bit tricky. Um, They're very good at just evading the immune system, and there are multiple strains, like you said, possibility for mutation and change over time. And so we do have some difficulty developing vaccines for this particular class of diseases. Well, I guess because one vaccine does not meet, fix all versions or varieties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hopefully, um, I know there have been several dengue vaccines uh, in trials recently, and there have been a lot of advances in vaccine delivery. So hopefully we'll have some breakthroughs with Zika uh, sooner rather than later. But of course... It's hard to tell. Yeah, does um, I mean we know like Bill Gates uh, has has done a lot to 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 get rid of malaria and mosquito, which I guess is another mosquito born, mm-hmm. and just even a mosquito net could help in a lot of these impoverished countries. Mm-hmm. Um, what else are government government organizations doing? Um, the and who World Health Organization? What what are they doing to work on the Zika virus? So they're doing a lot of health promotion. They're doing a lot of, say, public service announcements in these areas, um, trying to uh, tell women to be careful, especially if they're pregnant or trying to get pregnant. Um, Primarily what they're doing right now is there are these huge teams of people who are trying to get a good handle on the actual effect of these cases. Um, A lot of the numbers that we have, a lot of this information around birth defects, for example, are based off of Uh, medical record reports. But what they're doing now is going in and really tracing and doing examinations on these women, Hmm. on their children, and saying, okay, can we really classify this um, based off of some pretty strict standards as microcephaly? Can we classify it as being a Zika-associated? When were they infected? Do they have antibodies against Zika virus? And trying to really get a handle on that connection and the true impact. I guess that's why we don't really know 
you can't say uh, with certainty that microcephaly is caused by the Zika virus. It could be. I mean, it seems like mm-hmm. it, but you—they need the—they need more data. We, we need more data. There's a pretty tight correlation in yeah. many cases um, between infection and the microcephaly, um, but we do need more data. And I guess does it depend too? Because some people, I guess, could have have the infection and not have microcephaly. Oh yes, that's so true. The, the vast majority of cases out, will not. Yeah. So mm-hmm. now you got to figure out what's the difference and how do you mm-hmm. treat it once it's once it's handled mm-hmm. once you've been infected. Yeah, and the actual pathology, you know, how does infection cause microcephaly. We need to know that yeah. too. I'm sure there's a lot of listeners, Chantel, that are out there wondering, why would you ever get into infectious disease? <laughs> <laughs> do you have any good answers for that? Uh, because I'm against them. Oh, yeah, you wanted to fight it. <laughs> I, I do. You're I a want fighter. people to be healthy. I don't want uh, people to have to, to deal with this. I mean, nobody likes even just getting a minor infection, no. let alone these you know millions of people, especially children under the age of five, who die every year from preventable diseases. We need to do more. And yeah, so. protect the kids. And, and I guess the parents just learn. You don't have to we, – we don't need to be terrified, right? It, but it's real. It's a real it's deal. Real. And if you are going to travel out of the country and you're a female and sexually active, be careful. Pay attention. Yeah. I have students, for example, who are going on missions to that part of the world yeah. or internships or travel abroads. And they're asking, you know, what do I do? And I say, you know, make sure that you're taking care of yourself with exposure to any infectious diseases. Talk to your clinician. Are there any shots you need when you go to that part of the world? And then when you're there, just be careful. Long sleeves, mosquito repellent, and you should be fine. If so. you are infected, um how long does the infection stay in your body and in your system? How long are you still at risk? So um, for the for the long term, we don't actually exactly know, but you should be – most people are sick about two to seven days, huh. similar to, you know, catching the flu. Well, and that's interesting because if somebody lived uh, down in wherever, Nicaragua or Honduras or somewhere and they spent two years or a year and a half there, maybe being a missionary or just doing some work down there, some service down there, they could have been infected – yeah. Pre-Zika crazy news, mm-hmm. you know, and all and not even known it, and yet mm-hmm. still they're probably not still harboring okay. the virus. So if somebody's term, lived down but, there, they don't yeah. probably need to go be checked. Yeah. I mean, if it was yeah. a year ago, two years ago, yeah, they they um they should be fine. Most people will be fine. But um, is there any connection long term in women? I we don't I, know. I hesitate to even yeah. bring it up. You don't even know because it's probably not the case. But but talk to your doctor too, and just let them know where you've been, and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they can make sure yeah you're safe. Yeah. Anything else we need to worry about or get out there or make sure people know about the Zika virus or I guess any virus? Yeah, I mean just uh, again regular classic precautions with any infectious disease. We're still in winter virus season. Um, a lot of things uh, circulating. Um, and if you're going to travel to anywhere outside the U.S., make sure you pay attention to travel advisories. Make sure you're taking basic precautions. And just, just keep yourself safe and healthy and enjoy your trip. That's great. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, we appreciate you for coming in. Hey, thank you so and much. And your sister for bringing you. Yes. A little chauffeur <laughs> action today. Excellent stuff. Dr. Chantel Sloan, uh, again from the Brigham Young University, uh, health, a professor of health sciences here. Uh, giving us the insight, folks, what you really need to know about the Zika virus. We'll take a break, come back, and uh, continue the discussion about uh, things that will help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. My mother-in-law had uh, has just passed away um, from a 14-year battle with Alzheimer's. And wanted today in the Coach's Corner to talk a little bit about uh, mourning with those that mourn. You know, there there's a really powerful thing that I saw happen. Uh, just this... I don't know what you call it. It's it's an experience um, as you as you kind of get deeper into mourning for somebody that you love. There's there's a lot of healing that can take place. There's also a lot of uncomfortable experiences that you, you need to process. So I wanted on the show to take a minute and just share with you some of the things that I've learned um, by just you know talking to the people that were there at the funeral. And uh, and kind of processing some of the things that I learned. W- when you think about it, I guess most of us aren't really comfortable, and it's probably your evolution, right? You've evolved. Each of us have evolved to maybe have a little bit of an aversion to a dead body. Um, there, it's it's awkward. It's weird. Um, it's scary for some. We we had the chance, and my wife and I had many discussions about. Do we want the kids to see grandma in her last few hours or minutes when she doesn't – she's not quite who she is? And um, in the end, we we took our children and it was beautiful. It was very healing, uh, sad, very sad. And yet um, I think it was healthy. It was healthy for our kids to be able to process what's going on with grandma and and, and how we handle it, how you actually mourn. With those that mourn, and so uh, some things I learned. This is from all of the people that were that stepped up, that kind of walked us through the process of this. I mean, it's amazing. Some people are really, really good at mourning and being there for you. Others, you can tell, are just very uncomfortable, and they just they want to get away. So, first rule of mourning with those that mourn is to lead with your heart, not your head. I noticed that many times um, my heart would tell me I need to go do something, you know, maybe go reach out and talk to somebody across the room, uh, maybe go, you know, hold one of my kids and talk to them. But my head sometimes would get in the way. And I, and I know, too, when other people around me have lost somebody, my head says, ah, you don't want to get in their way. You know, it's family time. Just stay out of the way. But my heart kept saying, oh, no, you really ought to go visit him. You ought to go take him something. So can I just suggest, as you, as you might be going through this or others around you might be have, maybe have lost somebody close to them, lead with your heart, not your head. And a great example why is um, as my mother-in-law was kind of hanging on to life, you know, she, she, was, she wasn't there anymore. Um, she, she was basically in a, in a kind of a, a coma, I guess you could call it, non-responsive. And, you know, a lot of us felt like, oh, we need to be there. We probably ought to be there and we ought to take care of her and, and be by her side. And, um, and others were, were much more kind of practical about it. Just go get your sleep and come back and, and we'll start again tomorrow. Let's, let's just you don't need to sit by her side. Well, one of my mother-in-law's great friends uh basically against almost not the wishes but the suggestion of um certain family members ended up just deciding to go visit 
and brought a bedroll, brought a kind of a sleeping bag to sleep or a blanket to sleep on. And she was going to sleep next to my dying mother-in-law and, and just felt prompted. And she went with her heart and just showed up to go be there and um, was there the moment that my mother-in-law passed. And it was beautiful. She got to hold her hand. She got to talk to her and and just, you know, tell her it's it's okay and the family's there and and then after my mother-in-law passed, she she um she called family to to come over and and let us know. But it, the f- interesting thing is the woman wouldn't have been there if she hadn't followed her heart. Because the head of other people, much more practical heads, were like, ah, don't worry about it. She's she's fine. And, and so in the end, sometimes people go more with their head and that might lead to more regrets. So follow your heart. And it worked. And I talked to this wonderful woman. And for this wonderful woman, she's so grateful she did because it gave her an incredible opportunity to uh, – to, to basically be where she needed to be at the right time. Uh, a great example of this too, I had been out of the country for two years when I was about twenty or 19 to 21 serving an LDS mission and was in Argentina. When I arrived home, I was exhausted. I was so tired. And the next day I spoke in church and um, was really tired and wanted to go to just take a nap. I just wanted to take a nap and then I'll I'll go start visiting everyone I needed to visit with. But I had my heart telling me, oh, you really need to go visit. You need to go talk to the neighbors across the street because they had sent money for me to go on this mission. And they were so wonderful. And I got this prompting. I need to go visit them. And I thought, OK, yeah, I'll just, let me just I'll just take a nap and then I'll go visit them. Well, I went downstairs, took a nap in my house, came up about three hours later, um, recovering from jet lag, basically. And my mom said, oh, I can't believe you slept through all that racket with all the fire trucks and the paramedics and everything. And I thought, what? Yeah. And then she just told me that one of the the couple had just passed away. And I thought, ah, I missed an opportunity to follow my heart and be where I needed to be for someone. Now, my head made sense. Just go take a nap. They'll be here in a few hours. But my heart will tell me what to do that's right for me to do in the moment. So when somebody around you is suffering, follow your heart, not necessarily your head. Another rule, stay close, yet give them space. So that's a paradox, right? We want to stay close to these people that are suffering so that they know, so that we can be there to help them. You can't help somebody you're not close to. It's hard, you know, you got to get in and, and get in their life. But you also want to give these families some space. So you don't want to be in, you don't want to be knocking on the door every minute. So what I found, and I found this with people that were around us, they would they would contact us. They'd say they you know initial contact. I'm so sorry about your loss. She's such a great woman. They'd give us information so they they know that we had connected with them. Then they might leave us alone for a day, and then they might bring us something. The next day, uh, they might bring us. Breakfast. A lot of people end up bringing us dinner, right? They'd bring us something, maybe a gift, maybe a treat. We were making sweet rolls and we thought of you guys. So here's some sweet rolls for breakfast. And then they just kind of get in and out. Um, 
so that they were close enough to be with us and ask us what we needed and be there to help serve us, but then they'd, they'd leave. And then they might send us flowers the next day. So there's a way to stay close to people without being in their space. And a lot of those ways might just simply be mailing something, sending a letter, you know, commenting on a Facebook comment, um, whatever you have. But stay close to people so that they know they have a community. One of the number one things that helps us heal faster are communities, families, friends, people around us, people that matter. Um, Also, another tool, be real to help heal. A lot of times we do not know what to say at these funerals. We do not know what to say. So we end up saying the dumbest things. We really do. We, We talk about... You know, a cruise. Oh, your family needs to go on a cruise. Take all of the money and go on the cruise. (laughs) Okay. We'll go on a cruise now. Or we end up commenting um, or talking about something else, doing something more transactional. Oh, hey, I've been meaning to talk to you about this. I mean, I know we're at a funeral of your family member, but I just wanted to bring up this. Um, Remember that to be real means if if you've if you're hurting because of the loss of somebody, be willing to be hurting. Cry. If you don't know what to say, say, I don't know what to say here. You could just share experiences. Sharing experiences are great. Share your lessons that you learned. That's what I found. So many people had so many beautiful stories about my mother-in-law. And just hearing the stories helped me heal. But I wanted to see real stories with real emotion. Sometimes if you have a trite phrase that you always use, we're so sorry for your loss. I mean, that's great. I appreciate that. Um, But I've kind of found that you you almost can't know what to say to somebody that's grieving until you're standing in front of them, right? You need to be able to, to see it. I've also been to funerals where I've heard people say, oh, he looks great. That guy, he looks great. And honestly, I used to crack a ton of jokes about that because, you know, he looked better before he was dead. But then – and so this is why it has to be real. At my, my, at my mother-in-law's funeral, she honestly looked better than she had looked for years. She looked like the, the same old Merrily. So if it's real – you can say she looked great. If she didn't look great and she looked fake and you're saying that because you don't know what else to say, you're going you're gonna to get caught and it's not going to seem real. And if it doesn't seem real, then I've just found people have a harder time healing because now I've got to make up for the fact that you don't know what to say here and you're making this really awkward for all of us. So I'd also be really careful about advising people. I wouldn't really advise somebody at a funeral, you know, but you might because what are you advising them? What you need to do, have you, have you, have you looked into their insurance yet? You need to go look at their insurance. <sighs> not saying there's not a time and a place to bring that up, but if someone's expressing, I don't even know how I'm going to pay for this funeral. You know, this funeral costs $10,000 or whatever. You may not want to start advising. You might want to say, let me look into it. You don't worry about that. Let me go look into that and I'll come back in a couple days and I'll help you figure it out. Right? Give them some space. But be real. 
Be real. Uh, another tool that I found is don't ask if you can help. How about this one? Just go help. Some of the great, because if you're asking me, hey, can I help? Even if I needed help, I might not ask you to help. I'd rather pretend like I can do this by myself. Um, but it might be more, it might be easier if you just helped. We had people that didn't even ask if they could bring us a meal. They just called us 10 minutes before saying, we're bringing you a meal. And you don't have to eat it today. You can freeze it. It's great to freeze, but we're bringing you a meal. And it was like awesome. We ate so much great food. If people would ask, can I help? Uh, no, we're good. We're good. Uh, you might also just know uh, some people, you know, it's just easier for you to serve. So just serve. Some of us I know are really busy too, so we want to help. I'm not questioning if your intent is good. I know you'd help, but, you know, don't ask. Because a lot of times too, I don't know what I need help with. But if you notice that my walks need to be shoveled, just shovel them. I'm not going to go take the snow and throw them back on my sidewalks. Just just do it. Just serve. And by the way, that goes along with life anyway. If you see somebody needs help, serve them. Uh, another rule that I learned is permit these new losses to reconnect old friendships. I found that a lot of people come out of the woodwork at funerals, and it really is a great chance to reconnect friendships. So you could see the the loss of someone dear to you. It's going to bring out a lot of people from the past. It might even help you heal some some relationships and mend some of them. A lot of stories of old friendships were renewed. It was amazing to me how many people came to the funeral just for my wife. I had never really thought of that, that a lot of times the, the funeral wasn't even just for my mother-in-law. But the viewing and all of those other activities, my wife got to see a lot of her friends. So there's power in that as well, folks. Everybody, I hate to tell you this, we're all apparently going to die. At some point, at some time, we're all going to to pass away. And when we do, some basic rules. And we can all be there for each other. Let's lead with our hearts, not our heads. Let's stay close to those that are mourning, but give them space. Let's learn to be real. Uh, and 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 to help heal through our through being real, let's also maybe not ask as much if we can help, but just help, and let's allow these losses to help reconnect and uh, find old friendships and old feelings that were so good and positive. That's the coach's corner. Uh, great lessons, and I'm telling you, talk about the good in the world. It's there. When you lose somebody dear to you, close to you, I'm telling you, a lot of people come out of the come out of the woodwork to help and to, to heal. So appreciate all those that did for my mother-in-law, for my wife, uh, for our family. It was a beautiful, beautiful experience. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I love talking to people that are at the top of their field, right? The top of their game. I mean, some people are sitting there like, well, I don't like people that try to make it sound that simple. And, um, you know, you don't have to go chasing money. You don't have to go be in love with money and 
But the reality is there are people, and if you've ever been around somebody, I just sat down with somebody yesterday that is running a huge company, multi-billion dollar company. And he, with thousands of employees and tens of thousands of employees, and it's it's interesting how organized he really is and how it all comes down to very basic principles in his mind, in his, in his head. It really is about principles. And I think that's all Brian was teaching us is there's just certain principles that are going to lead to success. You can argue against them if you want, but it's hard to argue that companies that focus on sales make more sales. I mean, if, if all of a sudden the average uh, corporation is spending 25% of their workforce, 30% of their money on creating and generating sales, and uh, you know, a little homegrown business is spending 10% on sales, wouldn't it make sense that the corporation's going to make more money? Right? That's not brain surgery. And yet, as a small business owner, it's hard to focus on sales if you don't love sales. I'd rather create content any day, but that's useless if no one's going to go sell the content. So if you want a company to succeed, you really need to do what works. How about just long-term thinking versus short-term thinking? Have you been so busy just living your life day in and day out that you didn't plan ahead for something down the road? You ever had a trip that you knew you were going to take in, you know, six months from now? And then you waited till three weeks before to get your passport? Oh, just long-term thinking, you know, it helps. It's not perfect, but it, it can certainly help. So anyway, it's, uh, it's just some basic information. Um, and, uh, but also, I think if you just look at, uh, like, Brian Tracy's success rate, it's pretty good. Pretty good. You, if you're selling millions and millions of books a year, you're doing, you're doing okay. Doesn't, make, doesn't mean it's all perfect and great, but he's living his principles. He is creating sales. He is an entrepreneur. He is looking long-term. If you're trying to grow a business, you probably ought to grow some of those principles as well. But there might be more uh, other things we can be doing. Let me give you a few more that that will definitely impact your ability to, to live better. We might actually need to go back into our lives and eliminate some things, right? Get rid of certain things. There's a Listen to this story of a 90-year-old woman um, from Michigan decided to turn her cancer diagnosis into an excuse to travel across the United States. The woman named Norma is accompanied by her son, Tim, daughter-in-law, Ramey, and their poodle, Ringo. And they are out documenting their adventures via Facebook page, Driving Miss Norma. (laughs) Norma learned of her cancer within two weeks of her husband's death and told her son prior to the diagnosis that she had no interest in treatment. Her son and his wife then explained to the doctor... They would be driving her around the country in her RV and ultimately receiving his blessing. As doctors, we see what cancer treatment looks like every day, he said. 
ICU, nursing homes, awful side effects, and honestly, there is no guarantee she will survive the initial surgery to remove the mass. You're doing exactly what I want to do in this situation. Have a fantastic trip, the doctor said. In August, the family upgraded their motor home to a larger 36-foot model and began their trip by traveling to Mount Rushmore in South Dakota before continuing through the country, visiting other landmarks, historical sites such as Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Ramey uh, told ABC News that in addition to seeing the sites and gaining more than 100,000 likes on her Facebook page, Norma's health seems to be improving. How cool is that? She's getting better, maybe, or at least feeling better. She's receiving the benefits of being different, doing something different. Notice she set a goal. She's figured out how the goal is going to work. What a great way. If, if, you, gotta, if you got cancer and you got to deal with cancer, it sure sounds like a better way to do it. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. It's just technology. But I'm telling you, I have a feeling we are getting lulled to sleep. And we are sleeping through our own lives. The minute you have a free second, do you reach for your cell phone? Do you have to go check Facebook to see what your million friends are doing or have done? What is it doing to us? It's killing us. And again, it's just tech. I get it. It's just technology. However, this is still your life. And if you're going to spend the rest of your life just caught up in technology, what lesson are we sending our children? So before we sit there and try to fix our children's use of technology, make sure you take a really strong inventory of yourself. Are you addicted? If you lost your phone, would your life completely fall apart? Well, yeah. Who would I, who would I like? Well, I don't know. But that's pretty pitiful because if you lost your phone, you're still you, right? Well, yeah, but I don't know my friends' names or their numbers. Well, that's weird. Maybe they're not your real friends then. Come on. Come on. Hey, uh, you know, tech is being used everywhere. If you, I don't know if you heard this story about uh, cops. Um, North Northeast Ohio police are hoping to figure out who left a bag of methamphetamine in a hotel trash, I guess. And they 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 feel horrible. The police department feels horrible for the owner's loss and wants to help. The tongue-in-cheek message was posted Tuesday to the Macedonia Police Facebook page and asked the owners of the drugs to call or stop by to claim them so officers can in their words make your day. It's a trap. A photograph shows a baggie containing what detectives say is about a gram of high-grade crystal methamphetamine worth as much as 160 bucks. The detective at the department, about 20 miles southeast of Cleveland, says there were numerous empty bags in the hotel trash can. Police haven't identified who rented the room using a a gift card. Um, So if you're out there and you've lost $160 worth of high-grade crystal meth, about a gram's worth, give them a call. Or give us a call. No, don't give us a call. (laughs) No, 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 no. Don't give us a call. Ben, give the Macedonia Police Department a call. They're worried. They're worried about you. See, you can use tech to 
help people who have lost things. It's that simple. By the way, I used tech to find my my iPad once when I dropped it off my car, actually. I left it on my hood of my car. Drove away. I, I've only heard of, like, women doing that with their purses. Okay. Well, you need to get out more, Ben, because I'm not a woman, and it wasn't in a purse. It was on my roof of my car, and I drove away. And I called my son, and I'm like, have you seen my iPad? And he's like, no. And I said, it's missing. I lost it. And I was terrified. And he's like, well, Dad, have you looked it up? Have you, have you tried to the find my iPhone app and the find my iPad app? I'm like, no, what are you talking about? And about a minute later, he had found my iPad. He said, Dad, I found your iPad. It's traveling south on I-15. <gasps> what? Anyway, we, te- we contacted the iPad, told him to call this number. We know where you are. And within about an hour, hour and a half, we had our iPad back. Pretty cool. Tech is good. Tech making me happy. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back. More fun, more tools to help you live longer and stronger. Stick with us. Welcome back, parents. Ask any parent, and they'll tell you everyone has their opinion about how you should raise your kids. Some people think parents should be friendlier, putting their child's needs first. Others think parents need to be tougher, laying down more rules and harsher punishments. Maybe the answer is a perfect mix of both. Allison Schaefer is one of Canada's leading experts on parenting. She joins us now live from Toronto to give us some insight into some of the mistakes we may be making. Allison Schaefer, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you, Matt. Nice to be on with you. Great to have you. Talk to me about this. I mean, we, there's kind of the old school, you know, you you got you to gotta really be strong, rules, you know, Kids are here to do what parents want. And then the, uh, the modern method of we're just our children's friends, what, what model are we supposed to follow? Boy, see, that's where we got all mixed up. We have to understand that historically speaking, um, in European-based countries, that kind of colonial thinking of uh, hierarchical power structures where you know, the home is considered the little small social unit, and so dad is, at the, is kind of king of the castle. Right. I'm supposed to fetch his slippers and pipes when he comes <laughs> home, and the kids are the bottom of the pyramid. And in that um, style of homes in the old day, which went on for centuries, you know, roles were really to, to be our indentured servants, to mind our will, and the goal for keeping social order was obedience. And that has been our cultural history. Right. So the problem is we are in flux. We, we are now at a time where, in the last 100 years, we have seen an incredible surge in our understandings for the need for human rights and equality. Uh, even in the workplace, we're seeing flatter um, power structures. So this is something that's happening across all social institutions. It's just that what's happened with parents is now we've thrown out this old tradition that everybody understood, you know, you spanked the kids, right. or, you know, you put soap in their mouth if they were rude. <laughs> it, you know, it worked for generations. 
Uh, and now we're saying you can't do that anymore because we understand that it hurts children's self-esteem, um, that it leads to anxiety, that they don't reach their full potential when we injure them this, this way psychically. So we threw out we threw out all the old traditions, and we never gave parents a good replacement for what's supposed to come after that. Mm. And it left parents in a complete loss saying, so you're telling us that parenting is important and that environment matters, but you aren't telling us how to do it. And what we saw is the pendulum swaying way, way too far the other direction where suddenly we became super huggy, friendly. Don't cry. Oh, my gosh, you're crying. <laughs> Your little emotions are, are going to get crushed. I don't want you to end up in therapy. Okay, okay, you can stay up later. You know, we started, Yeah, oh, totally. We, we completely became doormats to, to our, to our uh, kids. And so I think we're starting now that we've seen enough of these kids that have been raised um, with parents who did not know how to find that middle ground, you know, they're very indulgent, they're very egocentric, and they're not functioning very well. So now we're seeing sort of the end result of that, and we're saying, you know what, we got to find a better way. Yeah. This, this is not good. We can see that it's um, not serving kids well, it's not serving parents well, but, but look what they're saying, Matt. What people are saying is, Take back the reins, parents. They, they want to go back to, to ruling with an iron right. fist, and this really concerns me because that's, that's not the answer. We, we, and that's, that's been disproved, kind of the oppressive, dominant parent, but then so too has the weak parent because kids need – kids don't need a best friend. They, they still need boundaries. They still need uh, structure and, and discipline. Um, it's just how do, we, how do we play in the middle? Yeah, so that – and we think about that word discipline. You cannot raise a child without discipline. It is a requirement. It is in your job description as a parent that you need to discipline your kids. But discipline, if the, the word discipline comes from disciple. Right. It's about to, how to educate your child on how to function in society. That when we are at a restaurant, we don't run around so that the waitress is going to get tripped over and spill her tray of drinks. We need to sit in our seat and we need to use our inside voice so that we don't disturb others that are dining around us. That's to educate. That's discipline. Um, you know, and that's why you know, we heard the whole spare the rod, spoil the child, mm-hmm. which... It has been widely argued about the interpretation of that. You know, the the um, classic biblical was that the shepherd had a rod, and if you were a shepherd and you needed to take your sheep up the hill to eat, you tapped, you guided them with ta- a tapping motion. You didn't whack your sheep, just the same way that if you're working with dogs, you don't roll up a newspaper and smack a dog. You're going to create a dog who's angry or, or, or scared. You don't traumatize right. the animal. So guidance is, is child guidance discipline does not mean punishment. It does not mean pain. Um, and, and we're so wired to believe that a kid won't learn unless they suffer <laughs> because it's how we've done it for so long. But, but truthfully, a child in fear, a child who is scared is less able to learn. Um, and so how to do discipline, child guidance, without using punishment rewards, because well, this is the other change that's happened, Matt. We kind of got a lot of parents realizing, okay, I don't, I don't want to spank. I, I, I don't want to do the, the punishment thing. And then there was a proliferation of rewards. Now everybody is manipulating their child to obey 
by giving them sticker charts or mm-hmm. if, oh if, if you do your um if you do your chores around the house then you can get the ipad time on the ipad that's like the biggest we, we use technology as our ultimate lure you know if you do anything wrong i'm taking away your cell phone um but well, this, what does that do rewards. though because that, that allison life's not always about rewards either right i mean sometimes you just got a shower right and, and you don't get a sticker and a iPad time to just bathe. Like I bathe every day. I think of another way to make a person feel more humiliated and manipulated and like they're living life on the end of puppet strings than to manipulate them with rewards. It it, it doesn't work in any fashion. All we've done so much work now on rewards and we realize that it actually kills intrinsic motivation so you know that getting the notion across that we shower because we need to be clean and people don't want to smell your armpits after right. practice right. <laughs> you know that you have to help out around the house because we're a group and we shouldn't unfairly burden you know mom and dad who already worked all day those things are, are um, natural to a child to understand and you can't there's other ways to get them to be accountable for their responsibility without. But again, not unless you took a class or you learned because we don't have a cultural history of seeing this anymore. So, so of course, when our back's up against the wall and we ask our kids very nicely to do their responsibility and they say no, a frustrated parent will say, well, I tried being polite, I tried that new method, but they didn't do anything, so I ended up yelling, I ended up punishing them. So it's really about educating parents at this point, about new methods of how to be a disciplinarian without those old punishment rewards tools, which is pretty much all most parents know now. That's it, we dichotomize it, it seems like. So either I've got to spank the child or I've got to motivate them with positive rewards the entire time. But again, yeah. it's, that's just the same extremes as old school, new school. It is. It still goes back to the idea of I have no faith in my child. I must make them mind my will. They must be obedient. Um, and the only way to get them to be obedient is to manipulate them in some way. And what I'm suggesting is when we really look at the way human beings interact, we are wired to be social, relational Um, human beings. We love being together. We actually like doing work and cooperating. And so we need to create environments in our home where we stimulate our child to want to cooperate with us. And early indications of this is, for example, why do children walk? Why do children learn their mother tongue? Because they want to fit in, because they want to be part of the group, because they want to do what everybody else is doing. It's our natural inclination. Um, And so we just need to continue doing this. And we see this in much more collective cultures and First Nation cultures and cultures around the world that are less hierarchical, where we raise kids to be collaborators, to, to, to win their cooperation rather than force their compliance. Mm. Um, and we just have to create those conditions in our homes, which is respectful relationships and a feeling of belonging. Those are the two kind of ingredients. Like if you had a Petri dish and you wanted to grow a cooperative child, you'd need to make sure that you had those two elements happening in your home. Um, But we come from a history where parent and child are in a slave-tyrant relationship, which is inherently disrespectful. Um, And so in the old days, the parent was the tyrant and the child was the slave. And all (laughs) we've done now is reverse roles. We now have tyranny of the child who is saying... I'm not. I'm not eating salmon. Go make me chicken fingers. Yeah. You know, and and the parent scampers off and becomes a short order cook. 
which is equally disrespectful. Totally. Right? No, totally. So, it's yeah. It's ever- not about, it's not mutually respectful. So I think you're asking, Matt, about where is that sweet spot, which is how do we have respect but understand that you can be the leader in the family, have a different role and different responsibilities, but do it in a respectful way. So being a boss without being bossy, basically. Yeah, right. Okay, let's do this, Allison. Let's take a break, come back. I want you to, to kind of give us some keys, some insights as to how we do that. How do we be the respectful uh, leader, still get things done, move, but and also how do we get to the intrinsic motivators with our children? Yeah. Powerful stuff from our uh our wonderful parenting expert, Allison, Allison Schaefer. If you go to her website, allisonschaefer.com, um, you'll, you'll be able to get access to all of her videos, her, her blogs, videos, podcasts, you name it. It's all there, folks, as, lo- as well as workshops. Um, we're learning. That's the key. you got to learn. You can't just stick to one old method or one new method. If it's not working, let's learn. We're doing it right here on the Matt Townsend Show, helping you have healthier families, healthier lives. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. Parenting Mistakes. That is the name of the uh, article uh, written by our guest, Allison Schaefer. Allison is a uh, one of Canada's leading experts on parenting, and um, she's written many a book, uh, is also a counselor, a therapist, um, and has been, she, she's basically everywhere. She is the parenting renaissance person. Allison Schaefer, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. You really, you've, you've done it all. Touch them all. You know, I have to say, um, I have a bit of a unique background in that I'm the third generation in my family to teach parent education. And my grandmother was very good friends with Rudolf Dreikers, who wrote a book called Children the Challenge, which is still, it was written in 1963. It was the book I was raised on. Wow. And um, and he actually counseled my family as a, a demonstration family to help therapists and social workers learn how to work with families. Um, and so I really got early exposure to a lot of the greats. And, um, you know, his book, that, that first book, Children the Challenge, is actually still considered by the Library of Congress to be one of the most uh, seminal works in child guidance of the century. Hmm. It's been translated into a lot of different languages. And when I was first approached to write a parenting book, I said, why? Why doesn't everyone just read Children the Challenge? And they said, because it's old. It's so old. I wrote Honey, I Wrecked the Kids as sort of my like tip of the hat modern um, version of some of the great uh, writing and thinking of Dreikers. And he was a colleague and student of, of uh, Alfred Adler. And yeah. Adler, Sigmund Freud, and Carl Jung were the three great minds that, that really brought modern psychology to the fore. So in a sense, I'm, I'm, I kind of have direct lineage to some of this yeah. thinking. I, I don't claim any of this to be my own thoughts. The way I present it is modern and unique. I mean, there was no iPads back in, you know, this right. it's, new, it's new applications to old theories, but these are well-thought-out, well-researched ideas. It's really not a modern thing. It's just finally society is ready to accept some of these concepts that would have been very hard to 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 sell to the larger masses back when women didn't even have the right to vote. Now we're you know saying that kids should have rights. That's that would have you know it's mind boggling back then. But we're ripe and ready for this message now. Well, we totally are. In fact, um, the idea is just basically you're going to be a respectful 
leader. You're still going to be in charge as the parent, yeah. but you're going to do so with honor and respect. You're going to model respect um, and teach us how to do that. Our job is to socialize our children so that they can function in the world. That's really what parenting is about, preparing them so that they can enter the, the, and meet the demands of adult life, which is those demands are social demands. You are not doing a child any favor if you can't teach them how to work in a group. So the child who goes to a kindergarten class and you can't line up and wait his turn because at home he's always the center of the universe and the world revolves around him, is going to have a terrible time in a kindergarten class. Then he's going to start getting in trouble with the teacher and then the friends aren't going to like him because he's acting out. We're not doing kids any favors by making them special. So instead we need to teach them what social living is all about. And small things, small things, Matt, like teaching a child not to interrupt it's amazing how many parents, as soon as their child comes into the room and demands their attention, they stop talking to their partner or their friends, and they'll say, yes, honey, what? What can I do for you? As opposed to saying, pardon me, I'm in the middle of a conversation. I'll get to you in a second. <laughs> yeah. them to be patient and to wait their turn. You're one of many. You are not the center of the universe. And yet this is simple training that parents just don't do anymore. Uh, you see it all the time. And, and yet, I, I guess that's it, because parents don't necessarily frame this that I'm trying to teach my child to, to, to negotiate the social networks of life. That's not what we see our role is necessarily. Right. And we and we and we need we need to and you will see that the happiest kids who have the highest functioning are the ones that have had that training. Yeah. So, you know, a, a small example too, just you know, eating at the table and understanding that it's fine to have preferences. We all do. I know all kinds of adults that you know do or don't like tomatoes or do or don't like avocados. Like we're all unique individuals, but we come together at the family table, and we have to understand that we don't always get our way you know we, you don't always get the meal that you want um so we say in a, in a democracy a, a social democracy you don't always get your way but you always have a say and what that means is it's fine at the beginning of the week to say i'm making up the grocery list does anyone have any requests or how can we make sure that some of your favorite foods show up at different meals so that we don't completely exclude people um you know, but tonight, if tonight is, is pork chops and green beans, you have a choice. You can enjoy those with us or you can pass. But I'm not going to get up and go make you a grilled cheese sandwich and be a short order cook. Right. That's disrespectful to my time. Um, and yet we have all kinds of families who will cater to their individual children and make three and four meals. Um, and, and they come to expect this. They come to expect that this is their right as opposed to um, that their parent is just being you know, weak-spined. Well, what a disability. So then they go to college and they don't like what's on the menu. Right. And they're like, what? Listen, I can give you so many extreme examples. I actually just heard of a woman who is, they've had a nanny the whole time this child was growing up, nanny housekeeper, and the child is going off to their first year of college, and the parents are actually sending the nanny. Now, if you need a nanny in college, you have failed in parenting, in my opinion. <laughs> that is, but, but, they, but in a sense, they kind of have to because they haven't developed him in a way. He can't cook for himself. He doesn't know how to do laundry. He's never been taught. And so that, that's part of what we need to do is to give our, ki our kids skills and autonomy so that they can function without us as they grow and they mature. Mm. So um, as you were saying, some of those... You know, how, what does it look like in terms of some of those tools? I mean, one of the first tools that I teach parents in a, in a democratic parenting workshop is the concept of natural consequences. And natural consequences is really about stepping back and letting life 
do the teaching. Um, so, for example, just how many people will fight with their kids over putting their coat on in the cold? Right. Right. I mean, it's a, if we got a Canadian winter, you, and well, I for sure believe that you can't let your child die of exposure <laughs> uh, or frostbite, that that would be a role of a parent to step in if there was a health concern. But a lot of it is really just putting a jacket on because we'd like them to be warm. And if they actually stepped outside for a moment in, into the backyard on a Saturday to make a snowman and they didn't have their coat on, within two or three minutes, they're going to say they're cold and say, I, I know why you wear coats now, because it's uncomfortable right. and your playtime is shorter if you're not bundled up properly. So a lot of those things, if we just let the child learn experientially, they will learn for themselves. They'll learn that when you slip on the monkey bars, you know, you fall and you get a little um, bump on your knee. And it's okay to have a bump. It's, it's, it's um, repairable. But now they have a, a way of learning about safety, of assessing risk. And um, parents, are they bubble wrap their kids, and they don't want them to experience these early mistakes. But it's a very important part of learning for kids to know. You know, jumping in mud puddles makes for wet socks. Well, and we, we almost um, – we worry for the child as a 35-year-old, um, not as an 8-year-old. I mean, an 8-year-old on monkey bars isn't going to have this catastrophic, major, debilitating problem. But yet we think as a 35-year-old that have heard every horrendous story um, from our lives and we worry – It almost, yeah, we do. We incubate them so much that they really have no shot at life. No, they're, they're, we have to think of it – and this is where I'm kind of like spitting in, in, in parents' soup so that it becomes a distasteful thing to do. We're actually interfering with their learning. We're yeah. interfering with them connecting the dots between cause and effect. And so if, if we're – you're right. Obviously, we don't use a natural consequence if it's too severe or if the outcome is too far in the future. Like, for example, if you don't brush your teeth, you're going to get cavities. Well, of course, but you're not going to get cavities for a long right. time. A child isn't going to put that together. But they're certainly going to understand if you drop your pee off the side of the high chair, the dog's going to come over and eat it, and now it's gone. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, they will put together – things that happen in close proximity, um, you know, if you touch the stove, you're going to get a burn. And so they learn very quickly to hold their hand away from, from the, the stove. They, kids don't repeatedly pinch their fingers in the cupboards. They do it once or twice, and they learn they've got to keep their fingers out of the way or the spring's going to snap on them. So I think sometimes we just jump in too quickly, and we need to let them have some more natural experiences. Yeah. I mean, so nature will teach. That's Nature will. And we know that kids learn the fastest. You know, we think we're doing so great with all our lecturing. and But, but honestly, saying nothing and just being empathic and saying, oh, it looks like you got a boo-boo. Let me kiss your knee. You're figuring it out. You're growing. You'll get it. Just having their back and being supportive is the best way to go. Hmm. And so, as I've mentioned, Dreikers and his great contribution, Dreikers and Adlers just said, if we know that kids learn so well from natural consequences and how the world works about gravity and friction and heat and thermodynamics, can we not take that same concept and apply it to social learning about how we sit at a restaurant or how we line up, you know, to go to the gymnasium quietly in between classes or whatever? And so they created something called logical consequences, which mimic natural consequences, except for it's about the social order and our social rules of living, not natural laws. Hmm. Um, So an example would be um, we need to sit at the table to have dinner. 
that's how we eat in our culture. If you get up from the table, that is a social indicator that you're being excused from the table and that you're done. So a consequence would be we need to sit at the table um, while we're eating. If you get up, then you're excused and we'll pop your plate away and you'll be welcome to have you know, meals at the next time that food is available. <laughs> and so a consequence for getting up is you're done. Yep. And now the pro- people get that you know, because... You see, the logical part is it makes sense. If I say, if you get up from the dinner table, I'm not going to read you stories at tuck-in. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. They're not well, even connected. Not, it's not logical to the right. child. The child j- just says, you know what? You're out to get me. You just want to ruin my fun. And therefore, it's personal. And therefore, I'm mad at you. And so you might take my plate away and not read me stories, but I am going to you know, pee in the shuffle of plant when you're done looking yeah. later. And they will seek some kind of covert revenge to, to retaliate because it doesn't make sense to them. So it's really important when you set up a logical consequence that it be related. It's, it has to have that educative function around our social norms. So let me make, um, let me, so give, let me give it, let me get an example. So yeah. um, if, if my son doesn't practice piano, I probably shouldn't take his phone away. Absolutely. Unless I guess he's on his phone. That's why he's not practicing. Yeah, they have nothing in common. But so what if if my son doesn't practice piano and that's one of his goals and he likes it, but he just it's the work that's hard. What would a logical consequence would be? We don't do anything else till we've practiced. You might use something called a when then statement. Okay. And a when then statement is, you know, that together you make a plan for the schedule for the evening. So, you know, we come home, we undo our knapsacks, we have a little snack, then we practice piano, then we have supper. And so you could say in the nat- in the order of how things happen at home, say, you know, when your practicing is done, then I know you're ready for dinner. There you go. That's, that's, that's one example. Now, notice that when I teach, I try to give multiple tools because I don't think there's always right, a no, perfect right. solution. I think there's different solutions. I know with my daughter, I was unwilling to sit and force her to play because this is her extracurricular. And I would say, look, I get that doing the drills, you don't get instant satisfaction and it can be kind of tough. And I say, but you know what? If we can just make a commitment to what we're willing to do each week, and if you really still hate piano by December, then why don't we not renew your, your um, piano lessons? Mm-hmm. If you're not interested in doing the work, then um, let's cut our losses. And, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not willing to pay if you're not willing to practice. Right. So, um, you know, and some people some make that say, early you practice. You have to pay. You no, right. Your allowance. Yeah. I mean, and and I, I, I think I think I guess that's the key is it's just it's it's kind of consciously making the decision for what we're going to do. I guess most of us are just winging it. Right. We, we aren't even thinking it through. And I and so again, having these tools and understanding that they're at our fingertips, we have to kind of look at the situation and say, what tool would be effective here? And in the case of consequences, which can be quite good, um, we, not only do they need to be let that logical part, they need to be revealed in advance, which means you can't wait until your son's not practicing and right. say, oh, I just came up with something. Now you're going to have to pay for the lesson. Um, that's, that is like being hijacked. You, we need to sit down with our kids in advance of the issue and say, hey, you know, we have a situation here. What do you think would be fair? And we need to include them in the conversation. Um, it's, it's quite fine to say to kids, listen, 
you got a brain. This, we've got to work on this together. We need to make up a consequence for this together, and it needs to be related, and we need to agree on it up front. And usually if the child has helped you create the consequence, you almost never have to use it. And, and if you do have to use it, they're not going to be mad at you because they knew it was coming. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like, so you said you're going to take out the garbage. What should happen if garbage day comes and goes and the garbage didn't make it to the curb? That's great. Get them to come up with something. Like we're, our brains are old. Yeah, you know, we're, oh, we're totally. not nearly as creative. And when the child is scratching their head and they're starting now, this is again, it's educative. Like so now there's stinky garbage for a whole week, and there might get maggots. And ooh, well that wouldn't be good. <laughs> like they've got to start thinking about the implications for their actions. So involve them in creating that consequence. Don't feel you've got all that pressure to come up with it brilliantly on the spot. That's right. And and again, like you say, it takes away. The, the pain of the implementation in a way because, well, this was your idea. You're right. the one that said that you'd go to your room or whatever. They're not, they're you're not the one. going to take it personally. And right. that's the part about being firm. You're setting the limits and boundaries. You're holding them accountable. But the friendly part is it's not personal. This isn't personal. I'm not yelling at you. I'm not saying you're a bad person. I'm just following through on our social agreements. That again, part of the socializing process. Yeah. Hey, as we wrap it up, um, Allison, talk to us about just give us like the one thing. If there's one thing parents could do today or focus on today that would make the biggest impact in their parenting to, to kind of bridge the old school and new school, what's that one thing? <laughs> well, of course, I tell every parent, you don't know what you don't know, so go take a parenting class. That's probably my biggest mission, to say yeah. there is all this. If you if you take a class, online class, pick up a book, um, you will learn so much. You will find it incredibly empowering. You know, so you'll see that there are some alternative methods. So I think parent education is a huge piece there. Um, and I think the second thing I would say is, if we're going to truly equalize the power structure in our homes, I think the number one um, tool for parents is to start having something called family meetings. And you see these now, even on the TV show Modern Family. It, it, the modern sitcoms are even having <laughs> family meetings. But this is the idea of having like a place of governance where you decide together, where you make rules together, so that you can see things as a way of solving family problems rather than everything coming down to it's a kid who's misbehaving who has to be corrected. Mm. And if we're having trouble getting off the computer without a fight, let's talk about how to do that better. If we're having trouble getting out the door in the morning and being punctual for school, let's talk about how to do that together. And start listening for the ideas that the kids come up with and implement a strategy collectively as a family. You will find you will win so much more cooperation when you take that approach versus the me against you, me trying to discipline you to, to, to do what I say. It, it just completely shifts the whole... Um, uh, atmosphere of the family, and you will see your kids wanting to be more cooperative. Oh, it's so true. So true. Allison Schaefer, thank you so much. Uh, great insight. And um, I, I mean, I think I, I'm now motivated to go figure out a different way to get my help my child co or co partner with my child on playing piano. Yeah, <laughs> great. Well, Matt, thank you for giving it the time. Parenting's a big topic and it often gets swept under the carpet. So I really appreciate you giving it the time today. You bet. You bet. AllisonSchaefer.com is the website. Go check out the site. You can find all of her books, plus some of those uh, workshops, those online classes that uh, we all need to take to be better parents. Interesting stuff, folks. There's hope. There's hope, but the hope is in the learning. Um, we want to figure out a way to socialize the kids, not just get them doing what we need them to do. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Stick with us.
I came to Southern Virginia University to wrestle, but I stayed because of the education and the experiences that I had. For me, it goes down to the professors who care. Because of the personalized education that I received, I was able to start a business. As I did that, my professors understood the challenges and struggles that I had, but they provided me with the knowledge and information I needed to succeed. My name is Colter Sims, and I'm a knight. I'm Dave McCann for BYU-TV. I began calling games and hosting shows for BYU-TV about five years ago, right at the onset of football independence. Since then, with the help of increasingly ambitious football schedules and ESPN, national awareness of BYU sports is at an all-time high. By sponsoring the Cougars on BYU-TV, you align yourself with an emerging national brand and value-based programming. There's no opportunity like it. Showcase your brand in the right place. Call or email for sponsorship opportunities today. Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio Talk about good Welcome back friends to the Matt Townsend Show uh, interesting, interesting insight from Allison Schaefer. Um, I know I was taking notes as uh, I know Terry is always taking parenting notes to be able to better parent his child I don't know. Some of this stuff just seems like it's going a step too far. Well, what do you mean? What do you mean? Well, You'd rather just have the old school days where you could just yell and they would just... Well, it worked for me as a kid. My dad would say, do it. And I said, yes, sir. But you know what? Did it, Terry? It did. I did, I did whatever he told no, me to. For know, him, but, it worked great. I know, but Terry. Yeah. Did it really work? It did. I, I mean, look, Terry. You can talk to him. He's a doctor. I'm a doctor, Terry. So what? What? How didn't it work? I mean, you're you're make you're making accusations. It sounds like. Well, did it work, Terry? Yeah. You still, you still scare people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Your child still, you know, goes to his mom as a preferred love. Sure. Caring. If there's person. any sort of emotional need, he goes there because she's the mom. <laughs> That's why you're like, this is working. <laughs> this works perfect. See, you're, you are you are one that you should have been born in the '60s as your parenting style, but that it, would have just, killed you because you love technology. It too. just seemed like a simpler time. It was simpler, but not necessarily healthier. Now I can't say, you know, you did a good job. No, you can't because because I might be overstating the uh, the importance of whatever he accomplished. So later on down the line, when he does a quote good job, I've already just nullified that yeah. word. No, what you say though is. Whatever part of his character helped with the job, hey, you worked really hard on that. That's what you. That's what you embellish. That's what you. That's what you focus the light on. Instead of the job hmm. being good, you focus on the fact that man, you worked really hard to get that thing colored, and you were sure creative using all of the crayons. You're amazing. Now. Go to your room so daddy can watch his shows. <laughs> it just seems like you have to plot and plan every single phrase to your child so that you're not overpraising or maybe inadvertently shaming your child or overusing a word yeah. that, that will make him think that every little thing that he accomplishes is the, is the greatest thing on the, pla- on the planet when, in yeah. fact, it, it just, you know, common well, everyday occurrences. You know what that's called? Parenting. My kid buckled himself in for the first oh, time. That is a great day. He opened the door, got in his, got, climbed into the car, shut the door, got in his, his booster seat, 
buckled himself in and went, I did it. And I just I just went nuts because now I don't have to get out of the car. Where um, I just pull up. He gets in. It's Where it's were great. you? I was sitting in the front seat. <laughs> um, just looking back, just embracing the freedom. I just did. Were, were you yelling, hurry? Well, I do that all the time. But so he, that's great news. He got in. Yeah, but so, now he not like the, it's like the third day. He buckles himself, and I go, "Hey, does good he job know how to unbuckle himself?" Yeah, because that's that's why the doors have the child locks on them yeah. because he'd open the doors before the car stopped. Boy, the way I, we went out with some friends the other day, and I got locked in the car because of child locks. Hmm. I've never been more afraid. Yeah, that is a scary <laughs> thing. Like you're like, oh no, hold it, open the door, don't leave, <laughs> don't leave, you guys. Um, well, see, so there's nothing wrong with that. You just praise him. Good job. That that took a lot of initiative. But well, you don't, I, I don't just praise the act. That's the yeah. key. Well, I'm more in, concerned about the act. I don't want to get out of the car to get the kid in. Anymore. Well, I know. I know. But see, so that's that's what she's talking about <laughs> when she talks about intrinsic motivators. Because if he if he likes just performing the act, then that's an intrinsic act. He'll just do it naturally next time. See, it's easy. It's that easy. You're a good dad. You just are from the '60s. <laughs> it's not a bad idea. It's not a bad deal. It's just like Archie Bunker, minus the racism. Yeah, that would have been a fun show to watch, I think. Just oh, you to never... see things. Oh, it was I watched a little show. bit it of it. It was a great but... show. Great show. Hey, we'll take a break. Come back next hour. More ideas, more tools right here on the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You ever had somebody say, you know, what do you recommend at the restaurant? What do you recommend here? We were talking earlier about how Donald Trump uh, basically ordered for Chris Christie at a dinner. Basically ordered a mistake. You got to try some of these Trump steaks. And so we I was looking and found this interesting article about uh, from businessinsider.com about just certain things that you, you shouldn't eat ever. And it comes from a, um, a person that spent over 20 years working in food poisoning lawsuits, Bill Marler put together this article, and he has six foods that he simply will not eat anymore. And um, none of them necessarily are like from Chipotle because they keep getting in trouble. Um, Check out this list, though. Raw oysters. Just he's not going to do the raw oyster thing. Ben, have you ever had a raw oyster? Oh, he's having one right now. Mm. It sounds good, Ben. Yeah, they're not bad. You really... Okay, that's not how you eat an oyster. You just kind of more, with the oyster, you just kind of swallow it. You slurp it like that. Yeah. You're chewing it. If you chew it, you're just going to end up chewing it all day. Yeah. Don't eat raw oysters. Marler says that he has seen more foodborne illnesses linked to shellfish in the past five years than in the two preceding decades. And the reason? The culprit? Warming waters. As the global waters are heating up, it's producing microbial growth, which ends up in the raw oyster that uh, you happen to be slurping down. Uh, The second thing he suggests you don't eat, don't eat pre-cut or pre-washed fruits and vegetables. Anything that's pre-washed, pre-cut, careful. 
you got you got to anything that's been processed, pre-cut, pre-washed, take them out, wash them, do it again. Don't eat raw sprouts, which I couldn't agree more. <laughs> Why is anybody eating sprouts anyway? Actually, I like sprouts, but sprouts, uh, you know, they come with more than thirty bacterial outbreaks primarily salmonella and E. coli in the past two decades. Sprouts, you know, they've got some problems. Watch out for rare meat, obviously. This seems like a no-brainer. You know, but if it bleeds, it leads to so the hospital. so good, though. Do you like raw meat? Not raw meat, but rare. Like rare, rare? Pretty rare. Yeah. Do you know what we call that in my neck of the woods? What? You're a carnivore. I'll accept that. <laughs> Watch out. You got you got to get the heat up 160 degrees to kill the bacteria or you're going to get E. coli or salmonella. Uncooked eggs, I wouldn't, you know, don't eat them. Don't do the Rocky Balboa thing. Put it in your smoothie. Buh. Buh. It's a no-brainer. It'll kill you, folks. Raw eggs. Watch out. Watch out. And watch out for today's trend. There's a big trend about unpasteurized milk and juices because many are arguing that pasteurization depletes nutritional value. Yeah. Okay. It also saves your life. It it makes it so your insides don't try to come out on the outside. It keeps your inners on the inners. It's just better for you. There's a reason Louis Pasteur came to this world. One way, one reason is to make sure that you keep your drink down. So don't drink something that isn't pasteurized, for heaven's sakes. We're talking about restaurants, right? If you want to drink raw milk, you know, right out of the cow, at home, you need a life. Not to be rude. You need to do something. Hey, here's another one. Don't eat, don't eat rare pearls. Listen to this story. Out of Issaquah, Washington. I used to live there, you know. Did you? Yeah. They have a really... Did you ever go to this Italian restaurant? No, It's I, called Montalcino Ristorante Italiano. No, I, I've never been there. I don't know if that's how you say it, but yeah. that's... It, it sounded right. It sounded like a good pronunciation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A woman bit down on a rare pearl while eating a meal of clams the other day at a restaurant. She's eating like a clam sauce, probably, some clam and linguine meal. Mmm. Sounds good. At an Italian restaurant, Lindsay has. Did you know Lindsay? Lindsay and Chris, they live up in Issaquah? No. No. Yeah, they live there. I thought you'd know, just because you live there. It's a big town. Uh, They were eating at Montalcino Ristorante Italiano, and recently when she bit into something hard into her entree, Haz says that she wasn't sure what it was, uh, pulled it out, put it in her pocket, and went home to do some research. She took it to a gemologist who determined it was a quahog purple pearl worth about 600 bones. Pretty lucky lady. I mean, sure, it's a molar. Sure, she shattered a molar. But she done found herself a pearl. That's pretty neat. Normally, you'd say, waiter, something crunchy just broke my tooth. But this young lady, smart, smart, she just took it home, 
She says, and the owner of the Ristorante Montalcino Ristorante, Cindy Nardone, says she's so happy for Haz. That's great. She should have kept the pearl and then asked for a refund on her meal. Not a bad idea. Just trying to help. Is that how we do it in Issaquah? Yeah. Milk all the money you can. (laughs) She may make it into a necklace, by the way. That is cool. That is great. Something you can't always do when you find something strange in your meal. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's fun to talk to somebody that coaches these candidates. Some of them are so bad at uh, knowing what to do and how to do it. Can you imagine being paid by somebody to, I don't know, change how a Bernie Sanders does stuff or how a Donald Trump. Hey, Don, we um, we need you to not... Say some of the things you're saying. What? What? Well, you know, the whole Muslim thing. Could you just tone down that rhetoric? And like uh, we've heard, he he may not even believe some of this stuff because it works. It works. You know, there's the whole times. New York Times uh, interview that he did that came up in a, one of the debates two or three, four debates ago, where the big question is, what is what did he say off the record? Because with the journalist, he was saying something off the record. And many say what he was saying is he was saying it's not quite. I'm not going to keep talking about this wall thing. In the end, it's like not. It may not matter what they're saying, but it seems to matter to us, doesn't it? It seems to matter to us. What he, what he was talking about was uh, what with the New York Times, something around the idea of he's not really into this, uh, all the is immigration stances he's taken. Yeah. That he doesn't really want to go that far with it, but he did in the speech because it, right. as you said, it brought people with him. And that is there a, is there a tape of this? But the New York we, Times is like, it's up to Donald it's up to Trump. Donald. We'll release, release it. Yeah, we'll release everything he said. Yeah. And he's like, no, I believe too much in the freedom of press <laughs> to keep their to keep their secrets, especially when they're mine. But what, what it might be telling us is people will say anything to get elected, right? We're even finding out in a lot of these states where Donald is doing well, immigration's not even an issue. It's not even an issue. But what it might be that people like is the fact that Donald seems so passionate about what he's saying. He's a salesperson, and he might be just selling his message better. He may not even believe in the message necessarily. Many question if he is conservative, right? But he'll sell it. He'll sell it. And so uh, be careful. Check your gut on that and go get the information you need. You can get it from enough sources. And it doesn't mean he's just a bad guy either, these politicians. It might just be that they're, they really want to win. Interesting, folks. We'll take a break. Stick with us. More ideas. More tools next hour to help you live longer and love stronger. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, in 2014, just a year and a half ago, 19,000 Americans fatally overdosed on prescription opiate painkillers. 
That's a 16% increase from the previous year. According to government statistics, nearly 1.9 million Americans abuse or are dependent on legal opiates. Many experts claim that the rise in addiction comes from doctors overprescribing addictive opiates like Vicodin, Percocet, and OxyContin for major uh, or just for minor ailments. And in 2012 alone, physicians wrote more than 259 million opiate prescriptions. That is triple the number of two decades earlier. And in just a few uh, years, painkillers have become one of the largest health epidemics in our country. And doctors are prescribing and overprescribing may be the source of that problem. Joining us today is Dr. Andrew Kolodny, executive director and co-founder of Physicians for Responsible Opiate Prescribing, also known as PROP. He's here to help us walk through this epidemic, figure out what we can do to, uh, to watch out for in our own lives. Dr. Kolodny, welcome to The Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for having me. You bet. Honored to have you. This, this is such an important topic. I see it with clients and friends it's uh, it's it's out of control, isn't it? It is. This is the worst drug addiction epidemic the United States has ever faced, and it's gotten worse each year for the past 15 years, so that every year we set a new record for people dying from prescription opioid overdoses, and then the very next year we break that record. Uh, and, it, and it's, I mean, to me, I just reading the numbers, 259 million opiate prescriptions in 2012, just that right there might tell us the story because 250 million prescriptions times, I don't know, $30 a prescription or whatever the numbers are, that's a lot of money. It is, and you're right. That does tell much of the story. The reason that we are in the midst of a severe epidemic of opioid addiction, and I should say when, you know, when I use the term opioid, I'm not just talking about drugs like hydrocodone, and oxycodone, commonly prescribed pain medicines. Heroin is also an opioid. And in fact, the effects that heroin produces in the brain are indistinguishable from the effects produced by oxycodone. So an experienced Mm. heroin user can't tell the difference between each of those drugs. But the reason that we've got this severe epidemic of opioid addiction is that the medical community began to prescribe very aggressively starting in the 90s. And as the prescriptions went up, rates of addiction started rising and overdose deaths along with it. So so interesting because um, I there's, you know, in a lot of cities across the country, heroin addictions and overdoses are off the off the charts. So heroin would be more of the street, the street version of the prescription painkiller. That, that's correct. Well, we basically have two groups of Americans that have become opioid addicted over the past 20 years, the younger group and an older group. The younger group when they get addicted, and they could be getting addicted through medical use of painkillers prescribed for sports injury or some kind of medical procedure or dental procedure, or they can get addicted from recreational use. That young group, when they get addicted, and they now need a large supply of pills on a regular basis, they have trouble getting that from doctors. They can get a few pills here and there from doctors, but doctors are uncomfortable Unless the doctor's a drug dealer, they don't want to give a healthy-looking 25-year-old lots of pills on a regular basis. So that group winds up on the black market. And the pills are very expensive on the black market. So if they're in a region of the country 
where heroin is available, they switch over because it's mm. much cheaper. And over the past 15 years, we've seen heroin move into more places where it wasn't previously available to meet the demand for it by these young people who have become opioid addicted. But it's important to remember that there's this older group that's become addicted. These are people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, who are mostly becoming addicted through treatment for chronic pain. And when that older group gets addicted, they don't need to go to the black market. They usually can find doctors who will prescribe them all of the pills that they would want. And what's interesting and not well known is that the overdose death rate is actually much higher in the older group Mm. that's easily able to get pills from doctors than it is in the younger group that has to switch over to heroin. Why is that? Well, I think if you're giving someone who's opioid addicted a very large quantity of opioids on a regular basis and uh, they've got an unlimited supply, it's very easy for them to wind up taking too much and overdosing. The younger people who are out on the street buying heroin, they're having a harder time making ends meet. Sometimes they're engaging even in criminal activities to maintain their opioid supply. Overall, the amount that they're using tends to be a a much lower overall opioid amount. What's beginning to change, though, is in the past two or three years, the heroin supply has become much more dangerous. Increasingly, it has a drug called fentanyl mixed into it, which makes that the heroin much more potent. So we have seen a very large uptick in deaths in, in heroin users because the heroin has become more dangerous. But even with this very dangerous heroin supply, we still see more overdoses in middle-aged people receiving legitimate prescriptions for opioids from doctors. And and talk to us about what an opioid does to the body. What what are they feeling that uh, it's not it it's not like overstimulating them? Isn't it, is it slowing them down? What's it, what is it what is it doing to the body? Well, in large doses, you'll see people appear very sedated when they've taken an opioid, and certainly in, in a large dose or even in a small dose, if you're not taking an, if you're not used to taking an opioid, it can slow your breathing, and it can even slow people's breathing down so much that they stop breathing and they die of an overdose, which has become a leading cause of death in the U.S. Mm. Um, opioids can relieve pain. They also can produce a euphoria. They can make people feel good and so that you want to keep taking the drug over and over again. The problem is that when someone takes an opioid repeatedly, whether they're taking it repeatedly because a doctor prescribed it or they're taking repeatedly because they like the effect, it's a highly addictive drug. If you keep doing that, you wind up addicted to the drug. And then without the drug, you feel absolutely awful. You feel pain, you feel flu-like symptoms, and you feel severe anxiety, like like a panic attack, like you're going to die, like you're losing your mind, which is why people will do very desperate things sometimes to maintain their opioid supply. Mm. And they can become tolerant to it like within two weeks, right? So just two weeks of a knee injury, you could become, you could, it would no longer, you'd need to take more in order to have a higher or, or stronger effect. That's that's right. In fact, it can happen in even a week. Can if you're it? taking an opioid every day, uh, a few times a day, you'll start to need a higher dose in order to get an effect, in order to get 
uh, pain relief, but also within, if you're taking it every day, your body begins to become dependent on the drug so that when you stop taking the drug, you'll start to feel withdrawal symptoms. And that begins in, in as little as five days. I mean, if you're feeling, if you're becoming addicted to a painkiller because of a needed or necessary surgery, this is, yeah, it's, it's, there's got to be a better way. Right. Well, in, yes, there there is, and in Western Europe, for example, opioids are prescribed much more cautiously, um, and they're doing probably a better job of treating pain than than we are. Opioids are great medicines for end of life care when you want to ease suffering from someone who might have metastatic cancer, for example, and they're very useful if you've just had major surgery for a few days. But we've got dentists giving teenagers, you know, 30, 40, 50 Vicodin after wisdom teeth come out when they never even needed to give one Vicodin, mm. where drugs like Advil would have been just as effective, if not more effective, because it's anti-inflammatory. So we do have massive over-prescribing. We're giving out pills um, much too easily. The doctors who are writing these prescriptions and the patients who are taking them or the parents who are giving them to their children, I don't think they recognize that we're talking about drugs that are essentially heroin pills that need to be prescribed and taken very cautiously. Yeah. Holy cow. It's uh, this is the epidemic, man. Let's take a break. I want to talk more um, about, you know, what what else we should watch out for as parents, what we can do and and how this spreads to even, you know, heroin and, and other things and the importance of not introducing other drugs, too, into the process, because that could create even more problems. We're speaking again with Dr. Andrew Kolodny from the Organization of Physicians for Responsible Opiate Prescription, or PROP, and they, again, have a wonderful website uh, to get to kind of clue us all in on, on this, this epidemic. There's probably no better word for it than epidemic. We'll take a break, come back, and uh, continue the discussion, folks. Painkiller abuse. Don't take it lightly. This is a serious, serious deal. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, healthier lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Crazy stuff, folks. Uh, Again, 47,000 Americans overdosed in 2014. That is a 7% increase over the previous year and about one and a half times as many people as died in car crashes or in gun violence combined. When we say epidemic, we mean epidemic. We hear all of this talk about gun control and the gun lobby and yet... More people are dying because of prescriptions, uh, because of painkillers, opiate painkillers, Vicodin, Percocet, Oxycontin, heroin, and it's affecting the youth and older people. And honestly, in a crazy world we live in, heroin isn't where heroin is is kind of the cheaper version of these prescription drugs, but it's the people that are using the prescription drugs. It sounds like, according to our expert, that are really ending up, um, you know, becoming more addicted, more 
hung out and strung out than uh, even the younger people that are just using the heroin. Uh, again, all of them are bad. Dr. Andrew Kolodny is joining us, and uh, Dr. Kolodny is um, one of the founders, uh, co-founder and executive director of Physicians for Responsible Opio- Opioid Opioid Prescribing, also known as PROP. And you can go to the web so- website supportprop.org, which is a-, a resource site where you can find out more information about opioid uh, um, prevention and, and overprescription. We appreciate uh, you, Dr. Andrew Kolodny, for being with us again. Thank you. It, um, again, I found it in my own family. I've seen it. It starts with, you know, a surgery and, uh, like you said, an overprescription, probably, you know, 40 pills then, need, you know, lead to them borrowing or finding or stealing another 40 and then eventually they start shopping it. And I mean, I've seen it. I've seen people lose their kids, their family, their marriages, and eventually have to go to heroin and then hit the street. It's it's a terrible, terrible thing. And you're saying this really this is this is everywhere and we're not paying attention to it. That, that's correct. Uh, every state in the country has within it counties that are have that are struggling counties where there have been sharp increases in overdose deaths where families have been devastated either by overdose deaths or, or struggling with a loved one who has uh, addiction. Uh, and this is a problem that's really continuing to get worse. As it meant, as I mentioned earlier, it was caused by doctors over-prescribing pain medicines. We started in the 90s to really prescribe opioids more aggressively. And the reason we started to prescribe so aggressively is because in many ways we were responding to a a brilliant marketing campaign that misinformed the medical community about how risky these drugs are. The the risks were minimized. The medical community was told that that addiction had been, the risk of addiction had been overblown and that we were letting patients suffer needlessly, that we could be much more compassionate if we recognized that real addiction from opioids was very rare the proper way to treat pain is uh, just about any complaint of pain was with an opioid. And doctors didn't just hear this from the drug company making OxyContin or from other drug companies that ultimately got their painkillers on the market. They were hearing it from professionals eminent in the field of pain who were on speakers bureaus for the the drug Mm. companies, but they also heard it from their hospitals, from their medical boards, from their professional societies. There was this movement. Many of the people involved in the movement really believed what they were saying. There was this notion that opioids are a gift from Mother Nature and we're letting people suffer needlessly because we're too cautious. And so doctors began to hear that if you were an enlightened, compassionate physician, the way to treat pain is with opioids. And as we responded to that campaign and as the prescribing went up, it led to this public health crisis we're dealing with today. Is there, uh, it seems like there are tighter restrictions now on doctors where their prescriptions are now, I believe, being tracked better by the, by the federal government. Um, is that helping crack down on this at all? There, there really isn't tracking of prescribing. Every state has, uh, except for Missouri, has uh, uh, databases called prescription drug monitoring databases. And those databases could be used to track aggressive prescribing. They could be used to even have a medical board send a letter to a doctor 
saying, look, we're worried about your prescribing, please prescribe more cautiously, or, or sanction doctors if they're prescribing very aggressively. That's not really hmm. happening. What is happening is that the medical community is being encouraged to use those databases to see whether or not their patient is visiting multiple prescribers. That's it, yeah. Because, of course, if the patient is visiting lots of doctors, they're probably addicted, and giving them a prescription could kill them. Uh, so um, that's happening, and a few states have even mandated that their prescribers use the database before writing a prescription for a narcotic. But n- those databases, unfortunately, are not being used to monitor the prescribing practices. It's crazy because we hear so much about the drug war, and we've got to tighten the border so we're not getting drugs across the border. But then the drug war could just be big farm too, right? Big pharmaceuticals pushing a lot of uh, research in the 80s and 90s that, that wasn't necessarily, you know, academic and, uh, and, and changing, you know, the way we see prescriptions and, and the way we see medicating. That's right. I think the legal narcotics manufacturers have been a much bigger problem. They actually, by promoting opioids as safe and effective for common conditions where they may not be safe or effective, by doing that and by changing the way the medical community prescribed opioids, it led to this crisis. It led to millions of people getting addicted. And they even created a market for the drug cartels who are able to su- supply heroin. And yet the legal narcotics dealers are not getting in any trouble. Purdue Pharma had a, paid a small fine a few years ago, but they're still aggressively promoting these products. And, and it's, it's allowed in our federal agency, the FDA, which is the agency that's supposed to regulate pharmaceutical companies, they haven't really done their job well, and they keep approving new opioids, sometimes even over the objection of their scientific advisors, new opioids keep coming onto the market. My sister was a nurse and uh, in an emergency room, and she said she actually quit because of this thing, because of, uh, you know, addicts that keep coming in and just shopping doctors, faking injuries, doing whatever they can to get their next prescription. Um, this is this is something that the medical world could do a lot for. But also, I guess, in the end, if I take my kid to get his wisdom teeth out, I, I need to make sure that we don't walk away with a prescription of 40 Percocet. No. Um, you know, first of all, even if you were going to use an opioid, um, after wisdom teeth come out, there's pain for maybe one or two days. Yeah, two days. You worth. needed more than two days worth. But um, there's good evidence that Advil, uh, uh, drugs like ibuprofen, are better uh, for dental pain, um, and they have an anti-inflammatory effect. And in other countries, they don't give ch- you know teenagers Vicodin after nice. wisdom teeth come out. They give them drugs like Advil. So um, I, I think that really is um, important. What about after surgery? So if somebody went in for hip replacement surgery, um, I assume that might take a little more time needing pain meds. But at, at what point do do you need no longer need pain medicine? I mean, after, how do you after, do that? Yeah, after major surgery, a patient will typically, uh, if they're going to need opioids, usually be for two or three days, even a hip replacement. There are some surgical procedures, for example, open chest surgery, 
where a patient is absolutely going to need opioids for more than three days after they've had that type of major surgery. But for most severe pain, it's usually that you don't need opioids for more than three days, and yet we're routinely giving far more than that. Uh, Medical staff and hospitals are being encouraged to prescribe aggressively because the hospitals want to get good ratings from patients on, you know, did, did the hospital do everything to treat my pain? Did I get a medicine for pain every time I needed it? Those scores to questions like that are used to determine hospital reimbursement mm. uh, f- uh, from the, the federal government. So they're, they're also encouraging aggressive prescribing. You, know, you, you mentioned, I think you said it was your, your sister's a nurse in a hospital. Yeah, yeah. And it was very frustrating for her to have to deal with people coming to an emergency room saying they have pain when what they wanted was a, a painkiller because they're addicted. You know, I, I don't, we shouldn't really think of these people as addicts in the sense that you know there's this group of people in our population who are just bad, who right. want to just take drugs because it feels good. They're not addicts. They are suffering from addiction. And for many of them, that addiction began by taking pills exactly as prescribed right. by doctors. And even though they can engage in and behaviors that are pretty bad, once they're addicted, we should recognize that they really have, they're, they're suffering from a, from a disease, and their quality of life is awful. Oh, yeah. They wake up every morning with some degree of withdrawal until they've taken their first dose. Their life revolves around maintaining their opioid supply. The opioids themselves actually make people feel depressed. The only way they can try to feel normal or feel any pleasure at all is by taking an opioid. So these, they're really miserable and suffering, and and if you're a doctor or a nurse in an emergency room dealing with these folks pretending to have pain, it can be very frustrating and get angry at them. But we we have to come up with better ways of helping these people get treatment. Yeah, and we're, we're not doing a very good job. And you will uh, hear. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, doctor. Well, I was going to say one of the more effective treatments for people who have opioid addiction. Um, is treatment with a medicine called buprenorphine or suboxone. Yeah. And there's not enough access to that that medicine, unfortunately. And um, we have to do a much better job of seeing that people get treatment. If we don't, and if we just focus on preventing new cases of addiction, which we have to, but if that's all we do is focus on more cautious prescribing, then heroin will keep flooding in and overdose deaths will remain very high until that generation dies out. And explain Suboxone because a lot of times that is, that's that's the drug, that's kind of, I guess, the gateway drug off of the opiates. Yes. So um, Suboxone has opiate, uh, you'd consider it an opioid because it does interact with the brain's opiate receptor. Um, it works differently from other opioids. We call it a, we call it a partial agonist, which is sort of a fancy way of saying that it doesn't produce a full effect. Uh, when patients take that drug, it causes if someone's addicted and they're taking that drug, they get enough of a, of an effect from the drug that their cravings are very controlled. They but they don't get an effect that would make them feel intoxicated. And the drug has a unique property where if somebody wants to try to get high from it by taking lots of extra pills or, or actually strips, uh, it comes as a sublingual strip, if they try to take extra in order to get a, a euphoria from it, that won't happen. It has what we call a ceiling effect. Hmm. And not only will they not get a euphoria, but they also won't get the, the respiratory depression, the, 
won't stop their breathing the way other opioids would, which makes it much safer. There is a stigma around being on an opioid-like drug for your opioid addiction. And um, there are some who would say that's not really treatment. You're just substituting one drug for another. Um, and um, it's unfortunate that people have that attitude because the abstinence-based approaches don't work well, probably for most people who are opioid addicted. Some people can recover without this, without buprenorphine, but probably most can't. And if you insist on an abstinence-based approach, people will fail over and over again. Sometimes they, they'll give up even trying to recover. And overdose deaths, as we know, in, in untreated opioid addiction are very common. So then they get on Suboxone and then they... Do they stay on it forever? Do they wean down on it? Uh, how does that work? Well, some people are going to need it very long term. Yeah. Hopefully not. For Hopefully nobody will need it forever. And hopefully there will be other options out there yeah. that will come up with better treatments. There's talk of vaccines, for example, uh, for, for opioid addiction. Um, so, But a short-term use of Suboxone doesn't seem to work well. If you only give it to someone for uh, a month or a few months, when they come off, they wind up relapsing. Um, it's Once you, you take someone off the drug, the cravings start to come back very strong. Yeah. So they have to have strategies for dealing with those cravings. If someone is actively engaged in 12-step programs, for example, Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous, and they're taking that very seriously or they're plugged in with cognitive behavioral therapy, if they're doing that, they stand a pretty they stand a chance of mm. of maintaining recovery when they come off of suboxone. But if they're not engaged in intensive psychosocial treatments, we would call them, um, the there's a very high likelihood of relapse when they come off. And then and then eventually, it just sounds like they lose hope. They they give up. It's not going to work. They stay. I mean, and, and the opiate keeps creating more depression, more anxiety, more cravings up to eventually overdose. That's, that's right. I've uh, treated patients with uh, opioid addiction who um, on Suboxone who, who do very well. And they'll say, wow, I can't believe, you know, they're, they're recovering. Their life is coming back together. And they'll say sometimes that they had really given up hope that they didn't know that it, they, they didn't think that they would ever recover. They had just resigned themselves to being heroin, mm. uh, addicted to heroin for the rest of their life because they would get, they would get checked in for a detox, meaning tapered with methadone for a few days and sent home and they'd pick up again and they'd, or they'd go to the family would spend tens of thousands of dollars to send them to a rehab for 30 days. And then they'd get out and they'd relapse and they had just, they didn't think, that recovery was possible. And so um, uh, that it's unfortunate that we insist too often on abstinence-based approaches. Their patients do need better access to uh, treatment with medicine like Suboxone. And the federal government recognizes that um, the pre President Obama and his budget for 2017 is proposing $1.1 billion for the opioid addiction epidemic. And most of that is for improving access to medication-assisted treatment. Yeah, wow. It is a, it is a big deal. And uh, 
I think I think we've learned a lot, and we need to we need to step up. Dr. Andrew Kolodny, we appreciate your insight and your great work that you're doing there at Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Matt. You bet. Again, go check out the website, supportprop.org, supportprop.org, where you can get more information for um, just how to how to watch out for this, how to be a better advocate as well, and resources to uh, help overcome some of these major, major problems. We'll take a break, folks. Uh, come back and do a quick little wrap-up of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, I think you, I think you see it. Uh, again, you can easily have this mentality that somebody that is addicted to, uh, to any painkiller, to any drug, they just lack character, right? They just, uh, they would just focus, hunker down. They, they could just kick it. They could fix this. Folks, it's the body. And it's addiction, it's a sickness, it's an illness, and it's being preyed on by uh, large organizations, huge institutions that are designing the chemicals, the drugs, and uh, pushing the prescription of them. It's doctors that have been informed one way and uh, haven't checked their data or their research recently. Remember, a lot of the education that goes on with doctors once they are, they've graduated and are in the hospitals comes from drug companies. They're the ones that release the data and bring in you know, the drug rep to, to update them on the latest research. Isn't it interesting that the work from Dr. Andrew Kolodny is talking about the fact that Advil and ibuprofen in many cases is just as effective as these other stronger painkillers? The minute you're prescribed a painkiller, I would – you should be scared. I mean if somebody handed you a gun, you'd be terrified. You'd be terrified. If somebody hands you 10 painkillers, I'd be terrified. So when you go in and just have a simple procedure done and they give you 10 or 20 painkillers, be nervous. It should have the same effect on you as if somebody is handing you a gun because for some people in your genes, you may have the addictive genes too. And be more likely to get addicted. Within one week to two weeks, you could become addicted to the painkiller. And all because you got your teeth done or you you had a little surgery. It's crazy, folks. So take it seriously. More deaths than in car accidents and gun violence annually combined. And overdoses are going off the chart because now heroin is a cheaper fix. Instead of a $40 pill... It's a $5 bag of heroin, and the heroin is now laced with other drugs like fentanyl. Not, not good. Watch out for it. Watch out for your kids. Watch out for the drugs that are in your house. Get rid of them. Take them. Don't flush them. That creates other problems. But take them and, and dispose of them properly. Go check us out on iTunes and tune in. Go find our BYU Radio app. Download that so you can get back to all of our podcasts Hundreds of them uh, for you to archive and, and to go listen to. 